Welcome, everyone. This is a Council of Institutional Investors educational podcast. I'm Jeff Mahoney, General Counsel of CII. I'm here today with Jeffrey A. Sonnefeld, the founder and president of the Yale Chief Executive Leadership Institute and the Senior Associate Dean of the Yale School of Management. And Stephen Tian, Director of Research of the Yale Chief Executive Leadership Institute. Dean Sonnefeld and Stephen Tian are the co-authors of a recent research paper entitled, It Pays for Companies to Leave Russia. Welcome, Dean Sonnefeld and Mr. Tian. Thanks for speaking with us today. Uh, thank you, Jeff. It's an honor for us to join you. We really appreciate it. And uh, always up for any kind of a, a, interrogation and cross-examination by an attorney. <laughs> so let me start then. Your recent research paper, as I mentioned, entitled, It Pays for Companies to Leave Russia, is based on information you and your team have tracked since February on over 1,200 public and private companies from across the globe who've made a decision to curtail operations in Russia to some degree. So what inspired you to collect this information? What information did you collect and how did you analyze the information collected? Uh, well, thank you. I appreciate that question because it goes back to our shared joint history. I'd been working on the frontiers uh, and often in collaboration with your great organization going back 45 years. Uh, that when I was working behind uh, enemy lines at the uh, evil Harvard Business School, I was looking at social impact research as a professor uh, back in the 1980s and continued that. We've been at Yale now for, uh, oh, I guess about 23, 24 years. Our whole institute is about uh, 33 or 34 years old. And part of what we do is first school for incumbent CEOs. We bring CEOs together for, for uh, conversations and learning, but also doing research on what companies do. And much of it has to do with social impact. So whether or not it having to do with gun safety or climate change work or racial justice or uh, other frontiers like that, voting rights, we get into that. It's not the entirety of what we do, but it is a portion of it because increasingly the the social sphere has become a, a critical part of the strategic context of business. So when this came out, of course, I monitoring other things as we take a look at how what companies have done on voting rights or gun safety or whatever, uh, we saw 12 companies jumped in early. They were clustered, though, in an unusual cluster, Jeff, in the 45 years of working with you folks, we've never seen that the big oil, big tech and professional service firms were on the front lines. They're not usually the, the, the first movers on social justice issues. So that got my attention. I worked with one or two CEOs in each one of those three categories to try to understand what was going on. And then while doing that, a rush of pretenders came in because of artful PR. Uh, they were coming up with strategic smoke screens. So these pretenders were acting as if they were doing the same thing as these three clusters of companies that truly were doing the real thing by pulling out. So we thought we need to separate out the fakes from the real thing. As I was talking with some of the senior editors at major business publications and some of the producers on the TV network where I do work, I was disappointed that they said, oh, that's okay if they exaggerate a little. It's all in the general direction. They weren't exaggerating a little. It was complete fraud. And the CEOs that, uh, that were courageous were upset that they, we weren't separating out the real thing. So I thought, well, if we're going to hold them to accountability standards for, for poor performance. We should also celebrate the good ones and showcase the differences. So Stephen worked with me on separating them out. And we were up to uh, the 12, moved up to about 70 at that point. I went on CNBC 
and we revealed the list of the of the ones that were the pretenders. Their stocks plummeted that day. That same day, they anywhere from twelve to thirty three percent. They were down on a day that would look good compared to today's market. They were down like three to five percent in different indices. So nothing else happened with those companies, an independent industry sector. That's how we got on board. And we wound up ultimately creating a five-tier screen of A, B, C, D, and F. And we're up to uh, uh, close to 1,300 companies now. It has really mushroomed. Some of it due to the carrot of being celebrated and some due to the stick of being basically uh, uh, the punitive side of being outed for not doing what they purport to do. And So there are about 246 that are still digging in. Uh, but but more than uh, uh, 1,100, really 1,200 uh, that have pulled out. So your research found that from February 23rd to April 8th, companies who refused to withdraw or scale back their operations in Russia had a market cap-weighted return of a negative 5.5%. So how do you explain the negative return? How long do you believe the negative return will last? And, and given your findings, why have some companies refused to withdraw from Russia? You know, that's a great cluster of questions. And while my uh, our research director, Stephen Tian, is on the call with us as you introduced him, uh, even he, and he can answer that very well. I'm still going to jump in and answer that one first. And, and Stephen, feel free to correct it or add as we go. Of those 246 that stay in, Several of them, very high profile ones, are U.S. companies. And you wonder, what is Huntsman Chemical doing there? A company where the, um, the, 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 the CEO is brother of the former ambassador to Russia and to China, John Huntsman, who knows better? International paper, who knows better? What are they doing there? Match.com, what are they doing there? TGI Fridays or, uh, or Carl's, uh, the, the fast food chain and things. It's, it's strange that they're there. Also, some fashion companies that are there that we're sort of surprised that, that Benetton uh, and Vers- or Versace and things. And uh, all we uh, positively, because they are suffering. You look at their matched in Tenneco, you throw in that too. You look at their matched peers, they're doing way worse than their same industry sector peers. And, and by the way, we also did research to find out that almost none of these companies have as much as 10% of their revenues that were ever coming in from China. In fact, uh, it was about 95% that it's less than 1% of their revenues were coming in from China. So you wonder if it's costing them, it's hurting their market impact. And the reason the market punishes them, by the way, is of course, because of the business risk, the enterprise risk, uh, and the political risk and uh, the reputation damage that's being done staying there. So why would they stay? The question continues. One of them might be a bit of a perestroika uh, time warp, uh, sort of in the cognitive uh, mind thinking of the boards, where uh, post-perestroika with the restructuring of the old Soviet economy is many Western companies were seen as a bridge to to social harmony. That was was sort of a celebration of capitalism that was a a refutation of um, against uh, a Soviet era repression. Uh, that 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 doesn't hold up anymore when you have all the major brands that have moved out of there. Uh, and uh, another argument they use, which is untenable, is that they're providing something for humanitarian reasons. That's absurd. None of these companies have anything that is remotely related to anything that's humanitarian. And even if they were, there's no excuse. You know, Gandhi wanted to bring civil society to a complete standstill. That's also what got rid of Nikolai Ceausescu in Romania or Jaroszewski in Poland or Eric Honecker in East Germany. Is It's critical here. Or, of course, the great pullout in South Africa in the late 1980s 
against apartheid. The goal is to bring down a totalitarian regime and to show that they're not in total control. The other alternative is is war uh, to bring down a, a bloody tyrant. And we hopefully don't want to have World War Three because that would be so catastrophic. You don't even want to talk about it as it could be uh, sadly, are the world's last war ever. Uh, so this is a last resort is to make life uncomfortable for the average citizen to get that complicity through the complacency of the average Russian out there on the streets, unhappy with the way things are for them to realize that they, in fact, are a pariah nation. So that's that's the goal. Why these companies stay in then is they're afraid of reprisals. They're cowardly. They're, they also argue that, uh, well, they're, they're, their employees will be held to punishment because the, the, the Russian Duma has said uh, under Putin's direction that they'll be jailed if they stop working. Well, if, if they're out of work because a, a, a non-Russian company shuts the place down, they can't be held accountable for that. And of the millions and millions, we're looking at already 40% just of these voluntary business shutdowns. It's 40% of Russia's economy. It dwarfs whatever you read, whatever your listeners think is the percentage that's coming in from oil. This dwarfs that. That's uh, There are millions of put out of work and nobody's been arrested. There aren't enough football stadiums, bat, you know, soccer stadiums and all of Europe to round up the people that would be arrested. That's ludicrous. It hasn't happened. It's impossible. And it'd be a wonderful thing if, if Putin did arrest all these people because it would trigger the long past due second uh, Russian revolution. And Jeff, just to jump in from an econometric perspective, I think it's important to highlight the fact that we evaluated a, a wide range of potential explanatory variables for why you see the discrepancy in returns between the companies who are rated A for exiting Russia and the companies who are rated F for remaining in Russia. And, and you know, we thought maybe this could be chalked up to time frame. Maybe this could be chalked up to methodology, uh, you know, market cap uh, weighting versus uh, equal weighting. We thought maybe this could be chalked up to geography or maybe sectoral differences. But what we found is that, or even maybe pre-existing exposure to Russia, maybe the companies that you know have more exposure to Russia um, saw their stocks decline more. But Jeff, surprisingly, we found that none of those had any impact on the results. None of those potential explanatory variables were statistically significant at all. The only variable which was statistically significant was the one that we're looking at, which is the status of their exit from Russia. And, and again, you get this, as you can see from the SSRM paper, across different time periods, across different methodologies, we were extremely methodologically comprehensive in testing different time periods. And um, the result at the end of the day remained consistent across the board, no matter how you slice and dice it. And we should mention, as the SSRN paper, it's the Social Science Research Network, is the uh, premier, premier scholarly publication of preprint. It's sort of like what STAT is in the medical space. And uh, it's available, uh, I think it's available for free, that anybody can download it. You just type in SSRN, either our names or Russia list, and it'll bring it right up. It turns out it's, uh, we're, we've rocketed to the top of the list. We're one of the top 10 papers, and the paper's brand new. So thanks to this show, it will be surely number one. <laughs> so it's been widely reported that many companies that have withdrawn from Russia have incurred billions of dollars in losses from writing down the value of their Russian assets. So when you compare those losses to the gains and the stock prices of those companies, what did you find and were you surprised by your findings? Well, you know, what we found is to the minute when they announced their withdrawal from Russia, the stock soared. 
and the companies that didn't. You know, you could compare, you think, well, oh, well, the energy space. So no wonder, uh, say, BP and Exxon and, uh, and, and Shell are doing so well. Look, look at the, the soaring energy demands. Well, you, you look at the total energy of France or something, they're not showing the same superb results because they've stayed in. They're being punished for it. Uh, is that those who pull out, when they pull out, the announcement comes uh, that we've seen this, the stock has, has, has gone up dramatically well outpacing whatever the write-down amounts were. So rather than ever looking at this as an expense, this is an, an investment that is immediately rewarded. I mean, right, Stephen, we see the Societe Generale. You, you just, any example, the same day, IP Photonics, as soon as the no, news comes out, nothing else has happened in their space uh, to that minute as the, to explain the stock pop other than the withdrawal from, from Russia. No, and as Jeff pointed out, on an anecdotal basis, we notice time and time again, stocks going upwards on the day of that withdrawal. As Jeff pointed out, Societe Generale wrote down $3 billion in assets in Russia um, after selling their assets at a loss uh, to Vladimir Putin. And their stock went up 5% that day. IPG Photonics, which derives uh, in a double-digit percentage of the revenue from Russia, they're a laser company with significant operations in Russia. Their stock went up 20% the day after exit. But if you expand across uh, all of these, you know, single uh, examples, and if you draw out what's going on on a more systematic basis, we found this pattern played out time and time again. You know, whether it's commodities companies like Exxon, whether it's consumer companies like Heineken or, or Carlsberg, it's the same, or AB InBev, it's the same trend again across sectors, across geography. And, you know, even BP, which, as you know, wrote down 25 billion of assets, even their equity gains at this point now are at a comparable level to those asset write downs. So it really goes to show what the focus of investors are within capital markets. Clearly, allocators of capital are not as focused on the value of the losses generated by exiting Russia as much as the gains from the reputational risk associated with not having the albatross that is remaining in Russia at a time when Vladimir Putin is killing hundreds of thousands of innocent Ukrainian civilians. That is what matters, and that comes across in these results from capital markets. And what's good news for uh, CII listeners, of course, is that this is very hard direct proof. As you look at our A rating, B rating, C rating, D rating, and F ratings, they have to do with the magnitude of the actual exit. The more dramatically they exit, the more favorable the financial returns are. It is direct, irrefutable proof that doing good is not uh, is not antithetical to doing well, that there's a win-win here. So these people that wind up uh, chirping on the sidelines about woke CEOs trying to toady up to some uh, diminishing number of CEOs that are skeptical of social performance, of which there are not many, uh, that those sideline journalists trying to find that audience are, bar- are shouting into the wind. The data overwhelmingly says that uh, it's, it's the, doing the right thing can be very well rewarded in financial markets. We discussed some of your research findings with respect to the equity markets. Your research also looked at the credit markets. For those companies who withdrew from Russia, did they receive any benefits from the credit markets? And, and how did the size of those benefits compare to the benefits they received from the equity markets? Jeff, I'm so glad you asked, because this is one of the most important findings of our study, and also, frankly, one of the most overlooked ones. There's been so much focus on equity uh, performance, and, and rightfully so. It's it's a hugely important market. But what we want to emphasize 
is that the response that we are seeing is actually widespread across different financial markets. It's not contained to only the equity markets. And as one example, if you look at credit markets, the results are very, very interesting. Um, if you look at the credit spreads of corporates, of the companies that have withdrawn from Russia versus those that remain, if there's more of a generalist audience on the line, credit spreads is just the difference in yield between bonds of a similar maturity, but with you know different issuers. And in this case, the different issuers are companies that remained in Russia versus companies that exited Russia. You saw that for the companies that actually remain in Russia, their credit spreads widened much more than the companies that exited Russia. And that is pretty surprising. Again, this is not attributable to geography. It's not explainable by sectoral differences. It goes to show that, as you know, when credit spreads widen, that just shows that the risk premium that investors are demanding for holding a certain asset, in this case, corporate bonds, it's increasing. Investors are demanding a higher rate of return over the risk-free rate. And in this case, investors are demanding a higher rate of return for holding the corporate bonds of companies that remain in Russia, going to show that they obviously attribute an elevated risk and an elevated risk premium to companies that have not yet severed ties with Russia, given the reputational risk of remaining. And it's not contained to only bond pricing. If you look at derivative pricing as well, in particular, CDS, credit default swaps, as well as credit linked notes, you find that the market implied probability of default of companies that remain. Also, the spreads have widened relative to the companies that have exited Russia. And again, these are small moves. We should emphasize that credit markets are different than equity markets. Uh, credit markets are a game of basis points, not of you know, entire percentage point differences. But if you look at the percentage change in bond default probability, take the spread post-invasion versus the spread pre-invasion, what you find are some pretty massive changes in the bond default probability of companies that have exited versus companies that remain. And, and there's no other way to explain it. So what that goes to show, Jeff, is that this response is not just contained to equity markets. It's not a one-off, but rather it's actually a very comprehensive wide-ranging, broad response across different financial markets, showing that clearly allocators of capital across capital markets are looking at the same data that we are. They're obviously, you know, thinking about this issue in the way that Jeff laid out. And their response is reflected across a wide variety of asset classes and a wide variety of markets. And that is extremely powerful. That concludes our podcast episode. On behalf of the Council of Institutional Investors, I want to thank Jeffrey A. Sadafeld, the founder and president of the Yale Chief Executive Leadership Institute and the Senior Associate Dean of the Yale School of Management, and Stephen Tian, the Director of Research at the Yale Chief Executive Leadership Institute. If you have any questions or comments regarding this podcast, please feel free to contact me at Jeff, J-E-F-F at C-I-I dot O-R-G. Until next time, I'm Jeff Mahoney. Thanks for listening. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Voice of Corporate Governance, brought to you by the Council of Institutional Investors. The Voice of Corporate Governance is a free, non-sponsored podcast that highlights critical developments in corporate governance and other important issues affecting institutional investors. The views expressed by those interviewed on the podcast do not necessarily reflect the views of CII or its members. For more information on CII and its policies on corporate governance, 
please visit our website at www.cii.org.